You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As usual, I'm Ankit Panda from New York. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Well, Prashant, we're back, and we're going to be talking about a topic that's really forcing its way onto the podcast agenda quite frequently, uh, which is North Korea and its ballistic missile program. Um, so on late July 3rd, our time here in the United States, but on the 4th of July in Korea, uh, in North Korea, um, Kim Jong-un decided to test another ballistic missile. Um, and it came after a fair bit of a moratorium, I guess, if you can call it that, over, you know, just three weeks. They uh, they tested the Kumsong-3 coastal defense cruise missile early in June and just done a liquid fuel engine test on, July tw- on June 22nd, but they hadn't tested anything for a while. Um, they had obviously carried out the big tests in May. May was a really busy month. They tested the medium-range Pukuksong-2 missile, declared initial operating capability for that. They tested the Hwasong-12 intermediate-range ballistic missile, uh, which was a huge deal, um, and uh, you can check out a few of the articles we've had on The Diplomat about that test, and they showed off a new squad missile. But the 4th of July test was a huge deal because they claimed to have tested an intercontinental range ballistic missile, and their claim is being backed up by Japan, South Korea, the United States. Um, not Russia yet, but we're not going to talk about that on this podcast, but it's an interesting story why the Russians aren't backing that claim up yet. Um, so North Korea tested this missile. It flew to a range of 935 kilometers, flight time of the missile was 40 minutes. Uh, It's the longest flight time we've ever seen out of a North Korean ballistic missile. Those are the first two pieces of data we got, uh, which could have suggested an intermediate range ballistic missile. Uh, The Hwasong-12 also had a 30 minute flight time, but flew to a shorter range. North Korea tends to loft its missiles, which means they fire them at a sharp angle to avoid overflying Japan and attracting their wrath. Um, But then later that night, we got the we got the flight time of 40 minutes, and then we got an apogee of 2,800 kilometers, which is considerably higher than the 2,111 kilometers that the Hwasong-12 had flown, which really made it clear that this was an ICBM. It also showed that this was the best performing missile that the North Koreans had ever tested to date, and this came a month after the Hwasong-12, which was the highest performing missile up to that time. And then North Korea made a special announcement. Usually they wait a day and release the pictures of their launch, pictures and video of their launch the next day in their state media, but this time they knew it was a big deal. So they made a special announcement, announced that they had an ICBM capability and claimed that they could now deter the United States. Um, and uh, for podcast listeners, there is a podcast that I did a few, um, I guess, a couple months ago with uh, Vipin Narang, who's a nuclear strategy expert, and we talked about what it might mean if North Korea ever acquired an ICBM. Recommend listening to that podcast if you want to understand why this matters for North Korea's nuclear strategy. Vipin and I also recently authored a long article in War on the Rocks that we've also republished at The Diplomat that you can um, take a look at where we talk quite a bit about the, st- the strategic aspects. But this is a geopolitics podcast, and Prashant and I will talking um, will be talking primarily about what this missile means going forward um, in the region. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to talk very briefly about what the Hwasong-14 is. Um, and I think it's important to recognize, you know, what this is and isn't. There's been a lot of panic, a lot of articles that are suggesting that North Korea, you know, can now strike at any U.S. city. And yes, uh, the bad news is that this capability shows that they are getting ever closer to that capability where they could strike uh, the cities from where Prashant and I are podcasting today. Um, but they're not quite there yet. Uh, the range estimate 
estimates on the Hwasong 14 are still quite fuzzy, um, but they all agree that this is an ICBM. The shortest range estimate that I've seen was from David Wright, who, who early on estimated this would fly to 6,700. Um, Jeffrey Lewis, who also does the Arms Control po Wonk podcast, and I know that they'll be doing one on the Hwasong 14. They'll really geek out about the missile stuff, so you can check that out if you like. Um, he just published an article where he claims, uh, or he explores the possibility that the North Koreans tested this to a reduced range, and this missile might actually be more capable than what we witnessed, potentially flying as far as the continental United States, at least as far as the West Coast. Um, but for now, we don't really know how far it's going to go. It's a two-stage liquid fuel missile. We can tell that from the pictures and videos that they've released. Um, but uh, another capability that I think is quite impressive um, and shows some real um, knowledge on the part of the North Koreans is the fact that they're using a shroud design uh, for this missile. A shroud is um, when the re-entry vehicle, the part of the missile that comes down back to Earth when it's in space carrying the, the ballistic payload, um, is contained inside a, um, a surface that obscures its shape and obscures its features. So the North Koreans proved that by releasing video of the missile in space, uh, which is really quite remarkable. They did that uh, last month with the Pukuksong-2. They sent back pictures of the Earth. This time they released simple video showing um, stage separation in space, which is important, shows that they didn't have any issues with that. And they claim to have fully tested their reentry vehicle, which was kind of one of the last components that a lot of uh, North Korean experts who watched the tech had said that they really needed to get right to get closer to an ICBM capability. So in that sense, this is a really big concern. The good news um, about this ICBM is that it's really an inelegant design when it comes to operational deployment in wartime. Uh, the pictures and video they really show that they're wheeling this out on a giant transporter erector, which are actually converted Chinese logging trucks that they imported under false pretenses. Um, so they erect the missile, they, they stand it up on a static firing table. That matters because this isn't a road mobile ICBM in the sense that most people might think of, uh, that this isn't a truck that st you know stands up a missile and just fires it from anywhere. They need a paved surface, they need a firing table sitting area, um, and then they can launch this missile after fueling it, uh, probably vertically. There are still some ambiguities about how they fuel this missile, um, but the fueling takes hours, um, and that's plenty of time for South Korea and the United States to kind of gather satellite signatures of the associated fuel tanks and everything necessary to fuel a missile this size. So really, um, when it comes to the operational aspects, this is still very much a test design. This isn't ready for operational deployment. It's, it's, it's rather inelegant, but this suggests that they're going to be making more progress. They're going to be making more, um, they're going to be carrying out more ICBM tests in the future. And if I had to guess what the second half of 27 would, uh, 2017 would be, I think we'll see more of these kinds of tests. And I guess earlier this year, Prashant, they wrote an article uh, guessing that 2017 would become the year of the North Korean ICBM. So I guess that's maybe one of my better predictions over all these years of writing. Um, but that's enough for me. I want to move on to kind of talk about the geopolitics of, um, you know, ways forward here. Uh, so Prashant, I guess, you know, one good place to start, and uh, you and I both wrote about this, is we've had this kind of proposal come out of, um, I guess, first China, but now Russia is backing the proposal as well, which essentially proposes a dual freeze to the North Korean um, situation. And a dual freeze is, you know, recognizing the fact that any diplomatic resolution requires concessions from both sides involved. And the two sides here are really the United States and South Korea um, and possibly Japan and uh, and North Korea on one side. So the dual freeze proposal, um, well, you know, I've been talking for a while. Why don't I let you um, explain what it is? And, uh, you know, you had a few warnings, I guess, for the Trump administration. So why don't you kind of take us into, you know, what this freeze proposal is and why it's maybe not such a good idea. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I think, first of all, I, I wanted to just underscore a couple of points that, that you raised sure. about um, the ICBM launch. I mean, I, I think the the fact that um, this is very 
pre preliminary in terms of both what we know, um, especially because um, it, it's still very much uh, early days. Um, and the fact that this is something that has been tested, it's very different uh, having something from being tested to something that can be uh, reliably launched on short notice under combat conditions. Those are two very different things. Um, and I think you pointed this out in your piece with uh, Vipin, which again, I, I encourage listeners to read. It's, it's a really comprehensive take both on the uh, technical capabilities uh, that North Korea possesses, not just in terms of the ICBM, but I think as you correctly point out, uh, we really need to take into account North Korea's capabilities um, and its missiles as a whole, rather than just focusing on, on one sort of missile or, or two or three different uh, variants, because it, it's really the cumulative uh, capabilities of North Korea that uh, should really concern us. Um, I think the second thing uh, that's important to emphasize is that um, you know this has long been in the works, right? We've been talking about um, a potential ICBM capability um, for a long time uh, within um, Asian observers, but also the community of North Korea watchers. Um, at the the main thing that's significant is that this happened much earlier than than scheduled. I think some folks were thinking that uh, we had till you know maybe 2019, 2020 for a capability to actually emerge. Um, and perhaps uh, President Trump thought that as well. Uh, he, he's, you know, him having tweeted that this this would not happen, um, and it, it it has happened, you know, six or seven months into his presidency. So this, I mean, that really is, um, I think, the significant point here that this has happened um, much earlier than we thought, and this narrows uh, U.S. options and it places an increased urgency on uh, existing options, whether it's you know, missile defense or diplomacy, um, but it also takes us to, to where you raised your point, which is, you know, the search for new options or fresh options beyond, um, you know, the two extremes, which is military action, which is extremely costly, um, and living with a nuclear North Korea and abandoning uh, the U.S. goal of denuclearizing North Korea, which um, is, is pretty unpalatable, um, at least now, even though some folks argue that eventually the United States may have to um, accept that. So the essence of the freeze proposal, um, as you correctly pointed out, um, is essentially a, you know, a moratorium where North Korea would uh, cease its missile and nuclear tests um, in exchange for um, some kind of concession on, on the U.S. and South Korean end. Um, at the extreme, it's a, a temporary stopping of U.S.-South Korea exercises. These exercises have been going on for a long time, and the U.S. and South Korea argue they're defensive. Um, that being said, though, I mean, they have, as, as you and I have written, they've become a lot more uh, provocative and strong in terms of what they're trying to raise, in terms of decapitation and the like. Uh, in response to North Korea's uh, increasing threat. Um, so that's, that's the essence of the freeze for freeze or, or dual freeze or double freeze um, proposal. Uh, the issue uh, that uh, some folks have, and I raised this in a piece that I wrote, um, is that you know, there's a number of things. One, um, an equivalence of uh, North Korean missile and nuclear tests with U.S. and South Korea exercises doesn't really stand up because you know, missile and nuclear tests that North Korea is doing violates uh, UN resolutions, but uh, the US-South Korea exercises are inherently a, a defensive measure uh, that are sort of created um, and also facilitated by this increased North Korean threat. So that's really where 
the chief concern is. That being said, I mean, there are variants of this freeze proposal. I mean, some folks have talked about maybe not stopping the U.S.-South Korea exercises altogether, but perhaps uh, reducing their intensity or uh, scaling them back a little bit temporarily while exploring room for diplomacy. Perhaps uh, that's more palatable relative to uh, the more extreme variants. Um, but I think this this freeze or, or dual freeze proposal, um, you've written about it too, Ankit, as well. I mean, this has been mm -hmm. gaining momentum um, from China and Russia uh, and some other folks who are thinking about what the United States can offer in terms of concessions um, for North Korea. And maybe you can talk about how this looks like from a China and Russian perspective other than the United States. Yeah, sure. Um, so the Chinese and the Russians did something unusual um, after this test. Uh, it just so happened that the test happened when Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin were meeting in Moscow. So it gave the two countries an opportunity to issue a joint statement, um, which they haven't really done um, after major North Korean test events like this. But they issued a statement effectively, um, you know, voicing joint support for the for the dual freeze proposal, uh, pretty much as the Chinese had phrased it. And, you know, this kind of factors into a lot of things. It factors more broadly into kind of Russia's general opposition to U.S. initiatives at the global level more broadly, but also, you know, Russia is now, uh, you know, they've been long opposed to the THAAD deployment as well. We don't talk about that as much since the Chinese are kind of the primary player in that dispute, but the Russians don't like that the U.S. is deploying advanced missile defenses to South Korea um, under what they see as the pretenses of the North Korean threat. Um, so they see the dual freeze proposal as kind of a starting point to roll back uh, just the U.S. presence in East Asia um, along, um, you know, Russia's eastern flank. But look, I mean, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un, um, and a lot of people didn't really notice this, I guess, because nobody really takes the North Korean state media releases seriously, but sometimes they contain important diplomatic signaling tidbits, right? So there was a lot of attention given to this interview a few uh, weeks ago by the North Korean ambassador in India. He indicated that he was open to this dual freeze proposal in an interview with an Indian um, TV channel. But, you know, Kim Jong-un pretty much reiterated that um, if you if you read this statement very carefully, and I, and I don't have it in front of me right now, I wish I'd done that before the podcast, but if you read this very carefully, it effectively says that, you know, denuclearization could be on the table if the U.S. and South Korea end their hostile policy towards North North Korea, which, you know, might sound like they're just okay with the dual freeze proposal, but I think that the concessions that the North Koreans would want are just, you know, would simply go beyond any sense of what is ever going to be realistic in Washington. I mean, you already talked about kind of all of the norm-defying problems that arise with, you know, effectively punishing North, um, rewarding North Korea, rather, for stopping its violation of UN resolutions, right? Like, that sets a, diff a difficult precedent. But look, I mean, here's what I think the North Koreans would want. I mean, their opening bargain would probably consist of recognition as a nuclear state. They really want this. It's not only a matter of prestige, but um, it's, you know, it's simply a matter of legitimacy for the regime. It factors into Kim Jong-un's own um, kind of Pyongyang line, which means... Um, bringing North Korea and its people both economic prosperity and absolute security under a nuclear deterrent. So they'd want that. They would want the United States to not only cease exercises with South Korea, they'd possibly want the, de the departure of all U.S. forces from the Northeast Asian theater. And they might even request, you know, the withdrawal of extended deterrence. In fact, I think for denuclearization, they would absolutely request a formal withdrawal of the U.S. nuclear umbrella over Japan and South Korea. I mean, these are just absolute non-starters. They would not only undermine, um, you know, not only undermine, I guess, to destroy U.S. alliances um, in this part of the world. Um, and, you know, just simply sent a devastating message about um, U.S. Com um, commitment and credibility. I mean, North Korea is an adversarial state. And um, if an adversary takes action like this and you simply pull back commitments in order to strike a deal, that's uh, really, you know, not 
it doesn't really seem to me like a realistic starter. I mean, what you know, what I think is probably most realistic. Um, and you know, this isn't prescriptive. This isn't my kind of pitch to policymakers about like do this. This is what I think is going to happen, given the fact that China and Russia are where they are now, and we have a Trump administration in the United States. I think what will probably happen is neither war nor you know learning to um, you know completely negotiate with North Korea and give it everything it wants. I think what will happen is we'll probably learn to establish deterrence and pursue some degree of strategic stability with North Korea. The problem with that is that um, strategic stability with North Korea to me seems like it has a pretty uncertain end date. I mean, Kim Jong-un for now seems like he's healthy. Um, I guess, you know, he was smoking next to a liquid fuel missile. Um, uh, I spotted that in the footage, which was pretty amusing. I would not want to do that if I was Kim Jong-un. Uh, but he was, you know, I mean, overall, you know, this guy's going to be around for a while um, and he's going to have nuclear weapons. He's going to have nuclear ICBMs. So, you know, that's nothing new for the United States. It's lived with ICBMs pointed at it by um, opponents for decades. Uh, the only reason to worry is if Kim Jong-un's nuclear strategy hinged around a first strike approach against the U.S. homeland, and it doesn't. Um, and if listeners are curious about why that's the case, again, either go check out the article or the previous podcast. Don't want to go into it on this episode for the, I guess, in the interest of time. Um, but the other the other reason to worry would be if Kim Jong-un was irrational, uh, which is a common kind of meme in uh, a lot of writing about North Korea, unfortunately, but it's it's not true. I mean, the North Koreans are concerned with regime survival. They reference what happened to Muammar Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein after they gave up their WMD programs, uh, respectively. Um, so it's, um, you know, there are kind of middle-of-the-road options here that aren't really that exciting, and they don't really get us to the end goal of either demilitarization, uh, sorry, denuclearization, or broader stability. But, you know, it, it seems to me it's kind of the most realistic way forward from here. And the unfortunate thing is that North Korea's program will probably advance to the point where, you know, all of these disadvantages that I talked about with the Hwasong-14, like the fact that it has to be fueled out in the open and um, isn't really a versatile system, they'll figure out how to solve that. I mean, they showed us canisters at the parade. They could load up these canisters, even with liquid-fueled ICBMs. They could look into, you know, capsuling these pre-fueled, um, storable liquid-fueled ICBMs down the line, which would give them more versatility and more, um, more of an ability to fire of these uh, fire these missiles remotely. They've really shown us an interest in canisterizing systems aboard um, all kinds of new um, launch platforms, including the Caterpillar Tread Tells that they've been using for their short and medium range systems. Uh, they probably won't go that route for the ICBMs, but they did show us you know a bunch of DF thirty one Topol M looking launchers um, during the parade. So this isn't really going to get better, but I think the United States is just going to have to learn to you know stop worrying and learn to live with the North Korean ICBM program. Yeah, I mean I think you're 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 right about um the the issues that the United States would have um in terms of both uh proposals coming from North Korea like the and and uh, sort of China and Russia on the on the dual freeze um but also the the idea that um we're we're in this interesting period now that will probably go on for a while um where the United States um will have to at least consider um, these these options, including sort of giving up effectively its goal of uh, denuclearizing North Korea and living with strategic stability. And I think, you know, the, there's a lot of uncertainties here as well that, that you know, we can't, we can never really predict, right? I mean, whenever you're talking about mutually assured destruction and deterrence, I mean, there's so many uncertain variables. Um, there, there could be um, accidents, there could be um, low-scale uh, conflicts at the conventional level and really difficult to estimate or or even predict how 
this would factor into Kim Jong-un's uh, calculations, especially since we there's a lot we don't really know about uh, North Korea, as well as it's, you know, as you correctly pointed out, I mean, how long is this regime going to last? Um, you know, we, we've had people keep on wishing for the collapse of North Korea for, for decades. It hasn't quite happened. Um, but there, there are so many uh, factors that uh, will need to be worked out. I also think, you know, it, it's interesting to talk about um, how the U.S.-South Korea alliance uh, will, will fare under these conditions, particularly because, you know, you do have the Moon administration coming into office and predictions that, you know, it, it, it will start to kind of pursue dialogue or, or, or some variant um, of engagement. Obviously, the fact that this has happened so early on in the administration makes it tougher. Um, but I think the the fact that you've had uh, Trump and Moon just, just meet over the summit um, and essentially, you know, what, what I got out of that was um, essentially a, a sort of compromise between between them both where Trump essentially said, well, I mean, if you're planning on pursuing this under, under the right conditions, that's fine. Um, and Moon sort of has the space to do that. But obviously this, this North Korean uh, ICBM launch uh, clearly means that uh, this this is additionally complicated, uh, not only for the United States, but it's also additionally complicated um, for South Korea. And I I think for the Trump administration, at least here in Washington, the the, the big worry is um, you have a president who now is uh, risk going into the 2020 uh, re-election campaign um, as the president who potentially will allow uh, the the fact that the North Koreans will be able to strike uh, the U.S. homeland on his watch. Um, and as a president, do you really want uh, that to happen without solving uh, this issue, especially a president like Trump who has made uh, a big issue out of appearing tough? And I think that is something which, um, at least for me, is pretty worrying, um, more sort of in the short term rather than the long term. I think you're, you're absolutely right that in the long term, um, my sense is that the United States, North Korea, and other countries will have to learn to live under these new conditions that are being imposed. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, um, obviously, you know, I wasn't a an analyst of Asian affairs in the late '90s when India and Pakistan broke out. Um, but you know, I mean, based on historical reading, I mean, you know, when when new nuclear powers come on the stage, they announce their arrival. Um, there is a great degree of uncertainty and concern, um, and especially when India and Pakistan went to war in 1999. Um, you know, one of the few case studies of two nuclear powers uh, going to war at the conventional level without nuclear escalation. There was serious concern that you know things would escalate. And you know, North Korea is a difficult country to understand for a lot of people. So I understand why there is. Um, all of this trepidation that they could just one day out of the blue decide that they're going to practice nuclear compellence instead of deterrence and, you know, hold San Francisco hostage for the removals of sanctions. Um, but, you know, I think that everything that I've seen um, about, you know, their their approach to their nuclear force structure, their approach to their nuclear strategy, suspect, uh, you know, suggests suggest to me that they're going about this in a pretty rational way that's primarily concerned with regime survival and regime legitimacy. Um, you know, not enough is said about kind of things like Pyongyang and kind of Kim Jong-un's domestic plans for his country. Um, obviously, this is a wretched regime with a terrible record of, uh, you know, human rights, but they are, ter you know, worried about 
what happens to the Kim family name. I mean, you know, we talk about North Korea uh, and, you know, people will say that it's a communist state, but really it's a monarchy, right? When it comes to uh, the legitimacy of the Kim family, it's, uh, you know, Grandpa Kim, Papa Kim, and now Little Kim. So it, it, it's going to keep going. And um, I think Kim Jong-un is concerned about what his legacy is going to be. So, you know, I mean, if I had to look back at recent developments in North Korea, I would say that for Kim Jong-un, this ICBM capability is almost equally important um, or sorry, um, almost equally important to the ICBM capability is the opening of this, you know, fancy new street in Pyongyang called Romyong Street. It's a it's a fascinating little area of the city that they've made to look all modern, look like Seoul, to show that they're, you know, bringing kind of modernity and prosperity uh, to the North Korean people. You see kind of reports of, um, you know, middle, you know, quote unquote, middle class Pyongyang citizens being able to buy property now. Um, you see reports of the government tolerating black market exchange rates for the won. I mean, there are these, uh, you know, there is there is a suggestion that he wants to avoid what his father experienced in the, in the late 90s, which was, you know, famine and the arduous march. Um, he wants to be the North Korean leader that ensures, you know, his own longevity because he is quite young. You know, he might live until he's 70 or 80, which puts him on the scene for another, you know, 40 to 50 years. Um, so he wants to ensure that um, between his nuclear deterrent and his economic um, his economic um, output, he's able to kind of ensure that North Korea stays viable as a state and prevents collapse. So I don't think that North Korea is going to do anything too crazy with its ICBM. Um, and the strategy stuff that we talked about previously, I think, really gets into that. Um, I guess, you know, as a closing note, Prashanth, um, I mean, we've talked about how, you know, a lot of these options are really bad. Uh, you know, Victor Cha, who's under consideration for Trump's ambassador, according to some reports, famously said that North Korea was the land of lousy options. That remained true when he said it, remains true today. Um, you know, if we don't go anywhere, I mean, what to you would really, you know, would really concern you as far as the possibility of a war goes? I mean, we saw in 2010, obviously, an incredibly... Um, abrasive, um, audacious attack by North Korea on the ROKS Chonan, the South Korean Navy ship, which killed about, um, I think, 48 sailors, and they also shelled Yongpyong Island. Um, and, you know, I mean, that really seemed like another time when the Korean War would resume. In 2015, we had the whole standoff um, between the two Koreas as well over the loudspeakers. Um, and then we had the landmine killing along the DMZ recently, too, uh, I guess last year. Um, so, you know, what to you would really um, set off flags that, you know, this is turning into a real situation that that merits proximal concern, at least? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a couple of things. I think the, the main one, main thing that worries me is that I, I think we still don't know um, if North Korea continues to develop its capabilities, it continues to develop uh, its missile capability, and it continues on with its nuclear program, even if it slows um, over the next few years. I mean... Uh, what does North Korea and how does North Korea behave um, if it has, you know, 10 to 20 nuclear weapons versus if it has 40 or 50? Um, and I think some folks would argue no real difference. Um, deterrence will hold um, and the regime's behavior will broadly remain uh, the same. Uh, I'm not so sure um, because I think um, you could argue and, and some have made this argument um, that um, if North Korea does have more access to these capabilities, it could think about nuclear weapons and even its its conventional arsenal in different ways. It could either uh, use uh, or think about using uh, nuclear weapons uh, preemptively, perhaps, but it can also uh, be more bolder uh, on the conventional level as well. It could grow more bolder and, and, and more confident. Um, and that 
poses a little bit of a challenge um, for the United States and and for South Korea in terms of how they react. The other thing is, I mean, we've been talking about uh, rationality um, and and you know sort of common sense on the North Korean side. Um, I I personally don't think that this can be taken for granted um, on the U.S. side. I mean, the U.S. has considered uh, previously, um, you know, whether it's possible to to conduct some kind of preemptive strike on North Korea, and it, it decided against it. Um, to take out some of its capabilities. This was under right the, the Clinton administration when um, Bill Perry was uh, defense secretary, and he came out recently and said, well, even though we considered that before, uh, right now it wouldn't really make any sense. Um, I'm not sure if uh, President Trump uh, himself uh, will make that determination. I'm not sure what will go into his calculations because um, even though there are wise people around him in the national security community that will advise him about uh, the tremendous costs um, in terms of the military options uh, on North Korea, um, I'm not sure what, what President Trump will decide eventually. Like I said, I mean, if, if, if you think about it, um, the fact that uh, this is happening on uh, President Trump's watch uh, going into uh, the 2020 um, election, um, and the fact that um, on several uh, different issues, we still are not certain uh, in terms of what direction this administration is going. Um, I tend to think that eventually things will work out. I'm an, I'm an optimist, but I don't necessarily take that um, for granted on the U.S. side either. So I think on both the North Korean side um, and on the U.S. side, there are a lot of uncertainties. I think, I think you're absolutely right um, that eventually the United States, uh, South Korea, North Korea, and other countries will have to learn to live with these new realities. But I think we really are, in the next two, three years, in this very uncertain stage where different actors will have to gradually come to terms with uh, different realities. And that's where one action or a series of actions, even at the conventional level, um, could escalate. Um, and there could be a lot of room for miscalculations. So yeah, no, maybe absolutely. I'm being a little, bit, a little bit too pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I asked you, I asked you a, a question that really begged for pessimism. So I think that was the right answer. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, Trump, uh, we talked about madman theory on this podcast before. Um, but you know, it, it comes down to the fact that he's also said that, you know, he likes to surprise. He doesn't like to be predictable. Um, and that's, that's really concerning when it comes to something like North Korea. And, and, you know, it's concerning to U.S. allies in the region, too, who don't want to be um, either decoupled by a North Korean ICBM capability, but they also don't want to be drawn into a war necessarily um, against their will. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good note to um, work towards wrapping it up. I did want to add one last thing, though. You know, you mentioned fissile material. That's one thing that we haven't talked about in a while because I guess they haven't tested a nuclear, a nuclear device, uh, which gets people talking about their fissile material stockpiles, which I think is a really important uh, factor to consider as a constraint. You know, they've shown that they have good industrial capability domestically to build missiles and to build new kind of um, launch vehicles for their missiles. But one, you know, one thing that I think will limit their targeting choices is going to be how, you know, what they have in terms of fissile materials. And they're looking to composite pits and things that will make their, um, you know, their total amount of fissile material, plutonium and highly enriched uranium, go a little further. But I think they might ultimately end up being constrained by um, their fissile material stockpiles. I mean, obviously, this is wrong if it turns out that our, opt uh, our estimations have been really off and they are way further ahead in enrichment and um i guess their plutonium stockpiles are larger than we ever thought um but i think that that will ultimately end up being the limiting factor it won't be their ability to make missiles it'll be their ability to put you know nuclear devices on those missiles and you know when it comes to wartime um 
if we, you know, go back to the strategy stuff, I think they'll end up, you know, deciding that they will get more value out of putting those warheads on short and medium range systems and probably saving just a few as an insurance policy if the United States decided to escalate. Um, but, you know, that's another another podcast for another day, maybe. Um, but yeah, Prashant, uh, thanks for, you know, kicking this stuff around with me. This is still really early. Data is still really early. So everything I've said on this podcast about the Hwasong 14 technically might change going forward. So I just want to caveat that in case listeners pick this podcast up a little further down the line. So uh, thanks for joining me, Prashant. Yep, good to be with you. Yeah, pleasure. And um, if you like this podcast and you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. And if you've been a longtime subscriber, but you haven't left us a review on iTunes or Google Play, please do so. And yes, we are now on Google Play, so you can subscribe to us on your um, Android device or, um, or just in your browser for easy listening. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back soon with more.